0: I viewed failures as really great learning experiences. I do believe that success really doesn't teach you much, but failure teaches you really what you need to move on from one failure to the next potential opportunity. And so it's really just looking at it as a learning experience and trying to eke out what you can in terms of lessons. I don't know if there's any time frame, but it's more the mindset. And for me, I've always maintained a healthy mindset and knowing that if I just persevered and learned from it, that I'd be able to figure it out. And I think you need to have enough confidence in yourself. And I attribute, quite frankly, my father to giving me that. In this series, as a special treat, we are featuring the music
1: of one of our guests in the series, Julia Kwamea. You can find the link to Julia's Spotify album in the show notes. I'm Ethan Debitt and welcome to the 50 Faces podcast, a podcast committed to revealing the richness and diversity of the world of investment by focusing on its people and their stories. I'm joined today by Paula Horn, who's Chief Investment Officer of the Public Securities Group of Brookfield Asset Management. She's had an extensive career in investing, which has spanned investment-grade credit, credit derivatives, and other public investing. She holds a number of investment committee and trustee roles. Welcome, Paula. Thanks for joining me today. Good afternoon. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Well, let's start by talking about your background and career journey. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And how did you come to
0: enter the world of finance? Sure. So, I came from an Italian-American family, born and raised in the suburbs outside of Boston. Mom and dad did not have college degrees, so I'm the first one in my family to not only have a four-year undergrad, but a master's degree. Lived in what I would term to be a project for former World War II veterans, so a very middle-class upbringing. Finance was definitely not on my radar at all. I went to Tufts undergrad, and I thought that I wanted to join the CIA. So I was very interested in international relations, history, political science. So that really captivated my imagination and ended up going to Russia through a program with the Fletcher School at Tufts, which was fascinating. Ended up spending a semester in D.C. on Capitol Hill, and that's pretty much when I decided that. Politics was not for me. It just really was eye-opening and just something I didn't think I could ever really wrap my head around. So I came back from that six months in D.C., finished my senior year, and that was 1990, and we were in the middle of a recession, and finding a job was pretty difficult. I... Was really looking to take what I could get. I was hoping to get into management consulting, but was a bit lost at the time. Looked through, if you can believe it, it kind of shows my age, but through the help wanteds <laughs> in the Boston Globe, found an ad for a software company and really needed to move out of my parents' home, wanted to live in the north end of Boston, sort of be on my own. And so I took that job. So I was a, effectively through the ranks of a software company for portfolio management services for asset managers. It took that role and ended up becoming consultant a couple years in. And the mid nineties consulted for a firm in Bermuda and they ended up being our client and then wanted someone to come to Bermuda for a couple years and oversee their back office operations. And, and given that that software system was really the system that ran the back office for a lot of asset management firms at the time offered me a, a role in the company to come move to Bermuda and work for them. And the
1: Russia spell, I had a similar spell myself, a fascination with Russia, driven perhaps in my case by a fascination with the language and the literature behind it in Chekhov and Tolstoy, less so than the emerging capitalism of that country. What did you learn and take away from that spell in
0: Russia? So we had a satellite class through the Fletcher School with Moscow State University. So what it told us back then, we were in the middle of the Cold War, and Russia was the enemy, and capitalism was far better than than anything else. And so I think what the Fletcher School did best, pairing us with our contemporaries at Moscow State, was to show us that at the end of the day, we were all part of humanity, right? And it really helped break down barriers and see the other side for what they were, which was just students like us who happen to be living in a different country under a different form of government. But it helped dispel a lot of stereotypes with Russian people. It really was just a way, I think, to bring humanity into the whole equation, again, in the middle of what was a really dark time in foreign relations and U.S.-Soviet relations.
1: Very similar to my own experience, actually also at Moscow State University. So that was that. that really? That's funny. Mine was in 1993 that I was there. So very, uh, I'd say it's
0: amazing.
1: Yeah, no, it was an interesting time. And then speaking of other kind of, I suppose, preconceptions, Bermuda, uh, thinking of these, some of these areas that are tax havens, or at least destinations where much of the back office can happen with many of these companies. What was that spell like? And what did you learn there?
0: It's a very small country. And so it again was a way for you know being an expat is an amazing experience and i think if one hasn't done it and obviously you have it definitely gives you a different insight in terms of a working experience and so working with talking about diversity which i know we're going to get to being a minority so that for the first time i was in fact the minority being a white woman in an office with mainly Bermudians, African-American men and women, but as an American, a minority. So wearing that hat for a couple of years, you definitely become much more empathetic to what we're trying to do with DEI here in the US and, and obviously globally. But having experienced that, I think puts you in a very unique position to be able to appreciate what you get from a diverse workforce. And it just isn't something you can get unless you've lived it. So it has made me, quite frankly, it's very formative in my career. And you definitely look at things very differently when you're able to wear the other hat, so to speak.
1: And walk us through then the steps from there, from Bermuda, into as of was, mainstream financial roles back in the US and where you went from there.
0: So it was a pretty circuitous path. In Bermuda, I was running back office operations. I was then given a chance to actually trade, so that was eye opening. And the ability to trade—you it, it, know, back then it was—it was a bit of the wild west—and so it, it really piqued my interest in what that meant. I then was able to start in credit research after two years in Bermuda. Our firm, which was an affiliate of Zurich Reinsurance that entity ended up buying the Kemper Mutual funds that were based in Chicago. So they relocated all the investment professionals from Bermuda to Chicago in one of the worst winters on record. I, at the time, was considered an investment person. I had been doing it for, I don't know, maybe six or so months. So came back to Chicago and effectively became, we merged Zurich and Kemper, and then ultimately Zurich bought Scudder, Stevens and Clark, And I became a corporate bond trader for investment grade and some high yield and then went from being a trader to then being sort of a co-PM. And that was really my stint at Zurich Scudder Kemper, which is what we'll call it. And then in the run up to the recession of 2000 and we had the tech boom and bust, I was given an opportunity to leave that entity and go work for an alternative fixed income manager. And that particular firm was not really invested in the credit space. It was a government ARB hedge fund who was looking to broaden out into other asset classes. So early on, I was given quite a lot of responsibility. And when we landed, we took a few folks from that entity, Zurich Scudder Kemper. We created effectively a large alternative credit manager, who was in the business of running hedge funds, CDOs and CLOs. So for the better part of the early 2000s, I was involved in overseeing and running various cash credit and synthetic credit CDOs and hedge funds. And so from there, and we can go back to that stint in a bit, but the path really was from PM to then overseeing all of credit for that entity, corporate and ABS and mortgage credit, to then spinning out, which was an amazing experience. We lifted out the entire credit team to create, which at the time was going to be one of the first credit derivative product companies. So it was in business to effectively on an unsecured basis get a triple A rating from credit agencies and sell credit default or corporate default protection into the marketplace. So we were out to actually raise equity capital and then ultimately debt capital for this new insurance company. Never got off the ground. We got our ratings, but then we had the great financial crisis. And our equity capital, I was, I think, four weeks after having my second child on a plane to Munich. We thought we had the capital. We celebrated financial crisis hits. They pulled capital because they were knee-deep in exposure to the U.S. mortgage market, unfortunately. And so we had to wind up that business and lay everybody off. And then I'll quickly jump after that. Another story, which we can get to later, but ended up at a more traditional equity and fixed income shop, which was ultimately the predecessor to Ziegler Capital Management, which is where I ended my career before I came to Brookfield, And at at that firm, I was effectively the CIO overseeing fixed and equity investments. Well, that's quite a journey. And it has, I suppose, more, I suppose, interesting
1: side paths than many trajectories, given the leaving to set up a firm and having to pivot then when market circumstances got in the way. My initial question before in knowing about the extent of some of the twists and turns was around progression because you mentioned already some of the backdrop and some of the setbacks in terms of market conditions many times that that can just completely thwart a professional game plan what do you think has been maybe the secret to you rising through the ranks and sticking at it
0: when sometimes market's conditions get in the way so i would say that resiliency and being able to compartmentalize has always been a strong suit over the years i've learned that it's really about just being able to put things in perspective. And I've, I've had sort of a acute ability to do so. I think growing up, I had a father who lost his job twice before I graduated college. It was a pretty formative experience for me as a teenager. And I looked to see sort of how he and I thought back throughout all of those experiences. You know, how did he get through it? He was supporting a wife and two children and at the time for most of that journey, I I did not have a full family. And it really was just constantly sticking to it, right? And perseverance. And I think that that ability to persevere is a quality that really determines whether you're going to succeed or not. You don't have to necessarily be the smartest person, the luckiest person, but if you stick to it, you ultimately end up Succeeding. And I think that's been the recipe for me throughout my career. How about at
1: the time of a setback, like, say, the financial crisis, meaning the equity capital didn't materialize, you couldn't set up this company that you had put so much time into? How much time can you take kind of recovering from that blow before moving on to the next one?
0: <laughs> that's a, that's a next, great question. The next challenge. one, I said the next challenge, not the next blow. <laughs> okay, right, right. Hopefully, the next challenge. You know, I think I viewed failures as really great learning experiences. I do believe that success really doesn't teach you much, but failure teaches you really what you need to move on from one failure to the next potential opportunity. And so it's really just looking at it as a learning experience and trying to eke out what you can in terms of lessons. I don't know if there's any time frame, but it's more the mindset. And for me, I've always maintained a healthy mindset and knowing that if I just persevered and learned from it, that I'd be able to figure it out. And I think you need to have enough confidence in yourself. And I attribute, quite frankly, my father to giving me that. I was raised in a great, strong-knit family, but I'm very independent. So early on, I sort of learned to figure things out on my own. So It may not be the greatest answer, but I really think that's it. I think it also relates a little bit to credit investing, which we're going to come to now, because
1: not all is lost either when something like that happens. There's plenty to salvage. There's plenty of them, good bones, perhaps in an experience or in a venture that can be sometimes repurposed. And I'm just thinking of a distressed investment that you, one can salvage value out of parts of credit, even if they're selling at a discount. I'd love to now move to your CIO role at Brookfield.
0: What's on your mind now in this role and what does it encompass? Sure. So there's a lot going on, obviously. And as a CIO of a listed, a, you know, a public securities group, listed credit, listed equities, the market has undergone some amazing volatility as of late. And there are now alternatives to listed credit. There's private credit. There's alternatives to listed equities. And so, in a listed environment, we have to continuously be thinking of how to stay relevant, right? How to compete, how to run an efficient operation, how to innovate. And I think the driving force behind what I think about most days is how do we provide solutions? Because I do think at the end of the day, firms like Brookfield, Brookfield Public Securities Group. We are about providing solutions to asset allocators, to asset owners, to our clients. And the solutions involve sometimes and oftentimes working alongside the private side of our business and the private side of capital markets. So how do we provide a holistic solution, not a product, not a strategy, to our potential, current, and future clients. I think no longer is it sufficient to say, we want to run a handful of real estate strategies and we want to be only doing a global and a U.S. We, we want to only be running a couple of infrastructure strategies. It's taken a bit of a turn of mindset within the portfolio management ranks to understand that, sure, you'd love your business to be simple, and have two strategies and only be concerned about that. But that just isn't the reality that we're facing right now. We need to partner with our clients. We need to as much help them figure out maybe what they need or how we fit into a solution, since we know what we do better than anyone. We're not selling just a strategy. We are selling, as I said, a solution to them If it's a liquidity sleeve alongside a private allocation, if it's the opportunity to capture and ride a mega trend. But we need to help them understand where our strategies fit in an overall asset allocation and how we can help them deliver to their end client.
1: And it's interesting because this kind of ties to my question around how you liaise with the private market side of the business, because obviously you want to offer an integrated solution, which may include both. Usually, one can only offer a solution when you know what you're solving for and you're in listening mode in terms of where the gap is or what the problem is. But equally, you mentioned megatrends. Sometimes you need to look around the corner over the horizon as to where the next problem is coming from or the next This client may not themselves know the solution they're going to need. So how do you square those two aspects that the listening dialogue piece, both with the client and your private side, and
0: then, I suppose, looking at the future? So we're in a unique position here at Brookfield Public Securities Group in so much as we have a real asset solutions group that liaises on a daily basis with the private side of the business because we offer a hybrid product, which is a liquidity sleeve that is comprised of assets that we run here at PSG, so liquid credit and equities, but that is an allocation to. Brookfield's private funds, infrastructure, and real estate. So as dual employees, I think that team has a unique insight into what is going on on the private side that they share with me and that we can share with, I mean, speaking not specifically, but obviously just of trends and what's going on in the industry with the listed side of the business here. So we do have a good sight line into what is going on in the private world. And that helps us be able to think through what needs does a client invested in private's want or need from a listed manager. So the liquidity sleeve, for instance, is something that we have been very successful in running. We have a few mandates that are coming down the pike right now. And I think liquidity has, you know, it's a double-edged sword, as you know, right? It can hurt as it has clearly over the last year in real estate where the stuff that's the easiest to sell gets sold to support things that are not as easy to sell. But the flip side is it's liquid and we live every day in a mark-to-market environment and it's there when you need it. So I do believe that that partnership with those two sides of our business are important and I think you will continue to see that partnership grow with products that we will in the future be launching. We're gonna take a short break to hear from the sponsor of this series,
1: With Intelligence. I sat down with Kip McDaniel, President Americas of With Intelligence. With Intelligence is extending its focus now to include the RIA market. I asked Kip what excited him about this market.
0: There's so much change. That means there's a ton of things to write about, to provide intelligence and data on, a ton of reasons why RIAs need to meet with other RIAs and that managers want to meet with RAs and vice versa. It is just, without a doubt, in the large-scale investing space, by far the most interesting and dynamic part of the market right now. And that is both good business, and it's fun to be a part of that.
1: And now, back to the show. And just looking to the future, what role do you think large diversified financial groups like Brookfield will play on that landscape going forward? We have the banks, we have hedge funds. And how will you continue to innovate?
0: I think it is exactly what I I said before. It's partnering with the asset owners and the asset allocators and being a solution provider, not just a source of return like a hedge fund, but a holistic approach to driving alpha for them in a customized manner. So we have a lot of what we do now is customized. And I think it will continue. We listen to what the market needs. We listen to our consultants. We listen to our end clients. And it's really customization that I think is going to be the differentiator, at least for us at at Brookfield PSG, the ability, the willingness, the risk management infrastructure that we have in place, and the innovation in terms of technology and modeling to be able to support what would arguably be a non-scalable type business to make it scalable. And one of the branches of
1: customization we're hearing a lot about in Europe particularly is around sustainability and achieving that within a portfolio, looking at maybe letting a portfolio contribute to a net zero goal. How are you seeing that grow in importance and how does that customization
0: factor in for you? It is a big deal. It is a huge deal to our clients and prospects in Europe, in particular in the Nordics. So a lot of the reverse inquiry is coming in from that part of the world. We now have at PSG a governance structure with an operating group and an investment committee dedicated to sustainability. We have participation from across the firm, not only on the investment side, but really across the support side and the marketing, legal and compliance to be able to support our efforts. We have a sustainable infrastructure product that has gotten a lot of traction. The goal here ultimately would be for that to be an Article 9 fund. So, you know, at Brookfield, we have a large transition fund, which is well known. And so we are replicating that to a certain extent at the listed level by looking at both infrastructure and real estate. But it is a very important trajectory that this industry is on. And the requirements, I think the expectations are only getting greater to the extent whereby we have clients that really are looking for us at PSG to report. The emissions trajectory of our listed companies, they're looking for us to demonstrate a high level of engagement with our companies and report on, in a quantifiable way, the amount of engagements we're having, the type of engagements we're having, using proxy voting as a tool to effect change. So at the listed level, there is only so much that can be done in terms of effecting change and engagement for us in proxy voting really are the levers that we pull. If we can't, at the owner operator level, impact it, we certainly can through those mechanisms.
1: And besides that evolution, just going back to your credit expertise and the fact that you were one of the first in terms of this credit derivatives product that had emerged as a business venture pre-crisis, how do you see the world of credit innovating in the years to come in terms of types of products, maybe types of liquidity? Will there be less innovation given the complexity that we're still sort of sorting out after the GFC?
0: So credit I think, well, we have already, and I think private credit has clearly become an asset class, a nascent asset class. So we have evolved where that is certainly in a place that it wasn't, say, five or so years ago. What we're seeing, so we have a real asset credit team, which is interesting because A large part of the reason why I wanted to join Brookfield was because of the space in which it occupies the real asset space. And we know real estate is a real asset. We know infrastructure, but not many folks talk about real asset credit. Not many people know what it even means. And I took a look at the track record of that team in the high yield space before I joined and saw how competitive they were in the broad high yield peer set. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. I don't know what this broad credit mandate really is. So, effectively, where I'm going with this is when you invest in credit in asset classes that are real, the default experience, the recovery experience, the credit quality is all far superior to broad credit. So, where I'm hoping this goes is that allocators to credit look at real asset credit. They look at Mandates only for infrastructure credit, for real estate only credit, and that those become as mainstream as broad credit because, quite frankly, they serve different needs, but they actually have far better sharp and risk reward and risk return metrics than the broad asset class. So that innovation is happening. We're starting to get traction from consultants when they see that these guys can actually compete and excel by investing in asset classes that have hard assets, they're inflation linked, they have stable cash flows, they're better balance sheet companies. You look at where the defaults are happening this year and where the stress is, it's in healthcare, it's in comm services, it's in other sectors that are not necessarily real asset sectors. So I think that is a vote of confidence. And I think it's proof in the pudding that those asset classes can stand alone and that credit may be able to take on a more bespoke a meaning for asset allocators. Fascinating. Well, watch the space,
1: I think, is the message there to take away. Very interesting. Just before we go to the reflection section, I want to just go back to some of that discussion around sustainability and this now vexed term ESG, because within that, we would tend to group diversity, inclusion, et cetera, and given your own rise through the ranks over decades in financial services, what has your experience been of the inclusivity of the industry? And how do you see it at this point
0: today? Improving, not improving, what grade would you give it? So I started in this business in 1990. And so from there, I would say we have come a long way. It is a different ball game than what I went through and experienced in the 90s and early 2000s. So I would say there is room to improve. There's room to go. But we have made a lot of progress. As an example, I will share with you when we were capital raising for this insurance company, this credit derivative product company, and we were capital raising in the early 2000s, I must have had 40 meetings with hedge funds, private equity shops, insurance companies, other asset managers looking for the equity capital for that firm. In all of those meetings, in all of the months that we capital raised, I encountered one female, one. That would not be the case today. So by that metric, I think we really have done a pretty good job. Now, I think the binding constraint to getting even better than where we're at is drawing diverse candidates into the asset management industry. We find here, and I don't know if you find this to be the case, it is certainly not a lack of effort or desire to hire diverse candidates. We just don't get the candidates in the pool to begin with, in particular women. And so we have partnered with Girls Who Invest. I'm sure you're familiar with that entity. And we are trying to help spread the gospel of asset management, in particular to young women and diverse candidates, because we just don't have them coming into this business in enough quantity. So I think we need to solve for that. And I think Girls Who Invest have done a great job in taking liberal arts students and introducing them to a world which they would never gain exposure to otherwise. We need to do more of that. And some ways I think of conveying the appeal of
1: working, say, in asset management is what we love ourselves about it. So you could have taken different paths after Bermuda, but yet you stuck with finance and rose through the ranks and, and
0: investing. What is it that you love about it? I feel like I get paid to learn most days. I love to learn. And I love to solve problems. And I think you combine those two and it is the recipe for a career in asset management. I mean, the investing aside, obviously, I love investing, but it really is about the problem solving and creating like product development. It's taking the raw tools, packaging them together, which is why I think I really enjoyed running the CDO business and hedge funds. and customized solutions at Ziegler because you've got the tools, but then you have to put the tools together how to figure out how they work and then create that solution. So other than the love of investing, that's really what's kept me going so far.
1: I love that, that focus on creativity and adaptation, innovation, all things that drive us well beyond a salary point. Talking about reflections, you mentioned your father and the impact he had on you and perhaps how he instilled that resilience and tenacity, whether you can expand upon that or other key people who had an impact on you and your career
0: and how? Yeah, I think honestly, it was really mostly him. Unfortunately, I didn't have the benefit of a female mentor for the majority of my career. I was given a lot of responsibility early on. I had a good team that I worked with for many, many years. But in terms of the raw drive and stick-to-itness if that's a word i think that really came from him and because i really didn't have that female mentor and for a woman in the 90s and early 2000s it was not sometimes the most friendly place so i look back which is why i think we've come such a long way because some of the things i experienced and and witnessed would never happen today but it's why i really do try to mentor the women we have here at public securities group We have a lot of really smart young women, not enough, but I try to be that mentor because I never had one. Well, you're not alone in that. I think
1: many didn't have, and that's part of the reason for this podcast series is to A, highlight that not everyone has had a mentor and that if you don't have one, it's not the end of the world. But equally, it's, I think, the importance just of those role models. And that's why we're gathering names like yourself. So my last question is around words of wisdom. Can you talk about any words of wisdom, creed, or motto that you live by that you can share? Absolutely. I think
0: I would say there's five, but they could be categorized probably into three. So, two of the creeds I live by are always be the solution, don't look for the problem. So, if you find a problem, figure out the solution before you elevate the problem. So, that would be one. I think two is listen far more than you speak, and make what you say impactful. It's quality over quantity. I talk to myself in every meeting that I'm at. I think through that. Listen, 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 make what you say impactful, but you don't need to say a lot. And those are words that I impart on anyone, man, woman, that I encounter in this industry. Like I think that has been hugely important in my success, in just making sure that I'm thoughtful in what I'm promoting. The others really revolve around networking and contacts. And I would say to my younger self, I would say to really anyone starting a career in this business, find that mentor, but don't let that mentor be everything. You need to not rely on that mentor for your contacts, for your network. Get out there early and often. I didn't do that. I relied on the senior folks, older folks at my prior firms to do that for me. I was the worker bee. I came in, I put my head down and I didn't really foster and work on building that network early on. I did later in my career, but certainly I could have done a lot better job earlier on. So I would say that. I would also say to my younger self, and having been a a young working single mom for a long time, give yourself a break. You don't always have to be 110% every day. Because I would tell myself today, you know, I'm not being a great mother or I'm not doing great at work. And Can you have it all? I don't know how you feel, but I think it's tough. And I think a dose of realism whereby you admit that, okay, maybe you can't have it all. You can do a lot of great things, but you're not going to be perfect. And you're not going to be able to give 110% every day. And it's okay. I think telling women it's okay is important. And I don't know if this is five, but maybe this is my last one. And kind of on a funny note, I would say learn to golf. Had I learned to golf earlier in my career, I just, again, let others sort of connect into a lot of business. And that may be a bit dated, and maybe that was something that took place in the 90s and 2000s. But I do believe that that is a skill, and it has implications for business, and it's a great way to meet people, and it's a great way to network and do business. And I don't think enough, in particular, young women take advantage of that, and I think they should. Well, that's wonderful, Paula. Everything except the last one is
1: within my comfort zone. The last one's making me pause <laughs> about the learning to golf, but maybe I'll take your advice on that. Well, thank you so much. This has been a conversation that has, from the very beginning, kept it real. It's also ironic we spoke about real assets and real assets and debt, et cetera. But from the moments from speaking about your father and his layoffs and his bounce back from them and what it instilled in you to the blunt reality of fits and starts that sometimes careers can take and how to pivot from them and bounce back. This has been a real honest and a discussion filled with authenticity. So thank you so much for speaking and sharing your insights with us.
0: Well, thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure
1: meeting you and speaking with you. I'm Ethan David. Thank you for listening to the 50 Faces podcast. If you liked what you heard and would like to tune in to hear more inspiring investors on their personal journeys, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. And all views are personal and should not be attributed to the organizations and affiliations of the host or any guest.